0: Bonjour, I'm Terence Galenter, your American friend in Paris, coming to you almost live from Café Terence in 3 Troisième Arrondissement. Today and every Saturday, I will be joined by colleagues to discuss books, movies, and song. And at the finale of every broadcast, I will sing a selection from the American Songbook. And uh, I want to welcome my guest this morning, Alan Riding, Former Mexico City bureau chief of the New York Times, where in 1985, 35 years ago, he wrote the seminal book on American-Mexican relations, Distant Neighbors, as valid today as when first written. The only thing that's changed are the players. And more recently, and much more in keeping with our location here in Paris, and the show went on about the French cultural life under the Nazi occupation from 1940 to 1944. Alan, uh, welcome to the broadcast.
1: Hello there again. Nice to talk to you again, Terrence.
0: Now, always great to talk to you. Before we talk about the uh, occupation and its parallels to this uh, confinement we're experiencing today, I always like to ask my guest, in, in this particular period of time what they're reading. Although in your case, I don't have to ask you. I know you're into that doorstopper by Julian Jackson, a certain idea of France. Talk about Charles de Gaulle.
1: Well, I've I've always been, uh, as a Brit, I'm required to be annoyed about Charles de Gaulle because he was always so ungrateful, as we like to use the word, so ungrateful. Why didn't he thank us for everything we did? Well, um, the answer, of course, I always knew was that it was his way of rescuing France from the humiliations it had experienced during the occupation and turning it magically into one of the great powers again that had a seat in the Security Council and uh, was one of the occupying powers uh, in, in Germany after the war and generally eventually became one of the nuclear powers. So um, I always thought that it was rather remarkable how he managed to do that. But now in this vast book, one sees the extraordinary complexity of um, of de Gaulle. I'm actually only at the point, can you imagine, 480 pages in where he's about to take power again in 1958, which becomes a different de Gaulle, although in many ways, of course, we've seen the the characteristics beforehand. And when we then discover he keeps the Brits out of the European Union or the European Common Market or community, as it was known at the time that he pulls France out of NATO, all of these things, you can go back to the wartime and his incredible resentment at having to uh, depend on what he considered this Anglo-Saxon complot, this Anglo-Saxon conspiracy to steal France's empire and keep France down, so it really is. It's an extraordinary book, and um, I, I I can't wait to see how it ends. Although, of course, like all good operas, it ends with his death. But apart from that, there'll be a lot in the meantime.
0: Well, you you mentioned the Brits, but uh, uh, Churchill uh, was a supporter in a kind of a clandestine way.
1: Well, he was at different times. Churchill would go hot and cold. He'd be because, f- frankly, looking at the details, de Gaulle was so absolutely provocative and annoying and irritating and bad-tempered and ungrateful that at different times um, at different times, the cabinet would turn against De Gaulle and Churchill had to defend De Gaulle against the cabinet. I think in the end he saw something of himself in this character, a man who had been on the outside and eventually was now fighting to get in on, on the inside. And he did try and somehow calm not with much success, calmed down uh, Roosevelt's hostility towards de Gaulle, but he, he also made it clear to de Gaulle during the occupation and afterwards that if he was going to be choosing between the United States and France slash Europe, he would always choose the United States. And this was in the back of, um, or maybe in the front of de Gaulle's mind when he came back to power in 1958.
0: Yeah, and he brought back André Malraux with him. He had a uh, quite a cabinet of people to, uh, I guess, redefine France.
1: Well, he was determined from the very beginning. And what is interesting that I discovered that he – you think of him as a, as a military person and a politician, but actually he – he was an intellectual in many ways. He loved writing. He was a good writer. He loved writers. He was, you know, uh, after the war, the people he he came to not listen listen to, but to admire were people like François Mauriac and uh, André Gide and so on. He really admired writers. Um, so, but what is interesting is in the early period when he was writing about the army and its and its um, shortcomings, and about how France could be elevated to a, you know, still greater height. It was, you could see, the again, the seeds of what happened in 1958. He said France needs a strong leader, a man who is not a dictator, but a man who is under some control, but who can actually unite the country. And of course, the Third Republic and the Fourth Republic were um, not presidential systems. Uh, they were built around prime ministers who kept changing. I mean, uh, in in the period in the period between 1947, when um, when De Gaulle basically stepped out of the post-liberation politics, in 1958 when he came back, there was something like 15 different governments. They, I, my first impression of France in those years was just the the, the prime minister kept changing, and so sounds like Italy. It was like Italy in those days. Italy was, uh, although Italy actually once it got uh, got over the so-called threat of communism, and it established itself with different versions of Christian democracy. They while they changed policy, it was very much the same government. Um, But in the case of uh, De Gaulle, he was absolutely determined that he. he, In fact, he made it clear that if he was going to come back. Uh, in 1958, because France was being torn apart already by the Algerian conflict, and and the point was that the French army based in Algeria was about to try and execute a coup d'état and certainly uh, a, a soulèvement, an uprising, and he was the man who was brought in basically to unite the country and calm that, and. His only condition was that we will change the Constitution and we will have not a prime ministerial system or a parliamentary government, but a presidential system. And, of course, that's what we have in the Fifth Republic to this day.
0: Well, that being the case, how do you think, uh, probably it's unfair to, to postulate, uh, how the Gaulle would be handling the crisis we find ourselves in now and what's your opinion of how Macron is handling it?
1: Ah, uh, well... Um, <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think the like, uh,
0: nationale is not listening, Alan. You can be as free in your no, thinking
1: inex- um, as you like. Oh no, I'm sure that the the, the French uh, Interior Secret Service is listening to this very carefully. Um, to ask to answer that question, De Gaulle was a man who learned to adjust to situations very quickly. Uh, he had endless setbacks when he was based in London. Um, he found. You know, he arrived in London and we think of, oh, OK, well, we know that not that many French went over immediately. But a lot of those were French who went over to London to seek to leave France um, actually were opposed to him. So there's a fantastic amount of fighting going on within the French, within the French in the United States, within the French in London with, later on. After the um, North Africa was occup- occupied, invaded, and occupied by the Allies in November 1942, again the French in Algeria, everyone was arguing. So he had to adjust, and he did adjust his positions a great deal. Uh, and he and he also worked with very difficult at the beginning, really limited resources. I mean, there was very, very few soldiers, and it took a long time before they built up an army, and then you had to somehow blend the army with the army that existed, the Vichy army that existed in North Africa. Now, why am I prattling on about that in terms of Monsieur Macron, is what we all want to know about Monsieur Macron. Well, um, you know, as, as, as President Trump would say, well, you know, I inherited all of this. I inherited all of this. The fact is that we um, were led to believe by the World Health Organization and or by others that France had the greatest health system in Europe, if not in the world. Terrific. So that meant as long as you were healthy, you felt nice and confident. The problem is that when all of this occurred, <coughs> we began to see the shortfalls and the and, and the problems. Obviously, the fact that you had these clusters, particularly in in the Grand Est, in in, in, in the the Lorraine and all that area of Moulouse and Strasbourg and so on, that was inevitable that a, shall we say, provincial, regional system, medical system was going to get overwhelmed. Um, Paris sort of got overwhelmed, but they managed to deal with um, by by sending people to other parts of the country. It's remarkable. I was just looking at the papers again today, how the distribution of the infections are and the are vast areas where there's absolutely nobody uh infected and or very very few which means I'm that the health of the
0: lot for example it's almost invisible
1: yeah i mean it means that the health system is and so as we know um, as people have seen they've been sending train loads of ill people down to get their treatment down there but the big but is and and this is of course a lot of countries have discovered it France, to this day, has not been able to do what the Germans did, which was what the World Health Organization suggested, which was test, test, test. It hasn't got enough masks. If you go into a pharmacy, they shake their heads, sadly. Um, and, of course, um, the ventilators. The ventilators have been less of a crisis because they've been able to distribute people around the country. But the fact is that, you know, they're talking about if we have this uh, opening up for the confinement or déconfinement, whatever, déconfinement, um, we're all meant to wear masks. Well, where are the masks? Well, they're all in China and they're being either stolen by Americans at the airports in China or whatever. But the fact of the matter is that this obviously has exposed some of the perils of globalization where you depend for, uh, in this case, uh, critical critical elements, um, masks and tests uh, on somebody on the other side of the world. So I think that you know, France has not done well. If you look at the UK, where, of course, there is a much more ferocious daily press in the UK than there is in France, um, the incompetence of the British government has been exposed much more quickly than the the faults here. Now the, the French are focusing on just what the... Uh, lifting of the confinement means, if it's going to actually happen, if the actually, if the results of the uh, the daily death and, and infection count improve considerably, then supposedly it'll be the beginnings of, of 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 loosening up of the confinement on May 11th. But a lot of people are worried about this. And um the polls show that I mean I know from talking to parents with, with children in school, they're very alarmed at the prospect. They say that, you know, how can kids be have social distancing? I mean they're talking about the caches, you know, the three two and three and four year olds. How you have social distancing, how you tell them to keep their masks on. I mean it's, it's you know, then bring them back into a family. Um, who is infecting who? It it it's a very it's a lot of very, very tricky issues. Um, well, I mean, we know that there are a million tricky issues lying ahead, but that one in the short term, which is, you know, Macron uh, has bought this extra month, this extra four weeks of confinement, and then, you know, everyone's scrambling to see what it's going to look like at the end of it. I mean, other countries are going to have to continue to to prolong their confinements um, unless, you know, except the United States, although I suspect the governors will continue where they feel it's necessary, ignoring um the, the man Our president the White
0: House. or my, my president in that case. Yeah. And I guess we've just to a, a, put a final note on this before we move on to the occupation. And it seems that Madam Merkel is doing, uh, you know, the Germans are doing a better job of this, as you alluded to.
1: Well, they what they did very, very early on, um, you know it's also partly a question of of the distribution of, of the population in in germany you don't have such a vast concentration as you have in of, of of paris in terms of power in terms of medical attention and everything else in paris so that's one one of the factors um, so and and the the lands the, the the regions of germany have much more autonomy and therefore it depends again on their medical systems but the bottom line is that they opted very early on for testing as many people as possible, following what people seem to think is the South Korean route, maybe a little bit the, the Singaporean and Taiwanese route. But you, you know, if you test enough people, you're actually going to be able to identify who, uh, who the, with whom they've been no, in contact. Sure. Yeah.
0: Well, just to jump, go backwards a little bit. Uh, are certain parallels, I believe, uh, to the current situation and and the occupation in terms of what people are doing to amuse themselves. Uh, what do you what do you see? Uh, do you see similarities in how people are having to go adjust their daily life, or what was daily life like for the typical Parisian under the occupation?
1: Well, uh, I. I was walking, of course, we can get out. And I I noticed uh, on the Boulevard Saint-Germain yesterday um, a big poster, which they hadn't bothered to take down, advertising an exhibition at the musée de la libération the new one in on the place uh, uh, d'enfant yeah and it sh- and, and and it was the the focus was the exodus the Exode of 1940 and it showed a very familiar photograph of people who with ca- you know carriages and prams and carts and you name it taking things it's a it's a famous picture it's a terrific a- exhibition
0: sadly it's well, well it's, on,
1: on, but it's on, but it's still open, and it's, it's through August. But anyway, the, the, when I was struck, when I was thinking of the exode, that those. People in that photograph are all poor, by the looks of things. They're not in the cars, slipping away. But um, I couldn't help sort of a little internal snigger about the exode that has taken place this time with all those people who have second homes and petits chateaux and and uh, gentillomiers or whatever it is, and have pushed off. And I have to say that um, without revealing uh, where I live, because then it'll be... Messages saying, We know where you'd live. Um, <laughs> uh, it's uh, a lot of big buildings, have very few lights on, and I suggest a lot of the bourgeoisie are pushed off. So that was one little snigger at the notion of the exodus. Now, of course, in that case, in, the, in 1940, um, while two-thirds of Parisians left, you know, most of them came back. Like, obviously, Jews didn't, although quite a lot of Jews did at the beginning unaware just what it would, it would mean. But most people came back. So what are the parallels? At the beginning, in the, in the case of the occupation, th- there was a curfew. Uh, the, in fact, there was a curfew all the way through, but the curfew was quite early on uh you know from six and then eight and then eventually it, was, it held at around 11. so people could actually go to the theater, go to the opera, go to a concert um and even still have time to get a train back to where the, you know if they lived in Saint-Germain or some part of a poche uh, pre uh, yeah somewhere that somewhere that was um was worth living so actually there was a degree of normality um, we're not talking about poor people, of course. The poor people were having to struggle. But again, at the beginning, you know, there was music hall, there was um, bars were open, and people could have a degree of entertainment. Music hall was particularly popular at the beginning, in the early couple of years before things began to get nasty. Now, th- the problem that obviously a lot of people, ordinary people got, wasn't either to be collaborators or to be resistance, but was simply to get fed and in the winter to have enough uh, fuel usually a bit of coal or a bit of, of wood they could get it to to warm their houses or their flats and um that was the the real problem um then of course the black market appeared so at the moment you know what we have in a bizarre way is we have more of a confinement than under the occupation people were freer to go out most of the time uh, there was a curfew but again i mean this at midnight there aren't many people around anyway and um They were they were free to wander around. They could go to the theatre. They could go to the cinemas. As as we know, people talk about the golden age of French cinema during the occupation. The golden age of French theatre, where a lot of people went, and and some quite good works of art were produced in that period. So at the moment, no one is able to do anything. I mean, I have you know because I've been dabbling in writing plays, um, and I'm, I'm a bit closer to the world of of theatre. And of course, I'm deeply alarmed about what it means. I don't mean for me, but it means in terms of for directors, for actors, how many theatres are actually going to reopen and, and how many of the actors that I work with, who, you know, are, are, are struggling and, and are going to. I know that in France, you do have this system of the intermittent, where um, if you have enough hours as somebody working in the world of culture, as a as a performer or as a technician, you do actually have some protection on unemployment. But even so, it's going to have a devastating effect on, um, I think, the culture across the way. I mean, eventually museums will reopen and so on. But for example, the Paris Opera, which had lost um, because of the strikes at the end of last year and early this year over the the French, uh, the government's plan to reform the retirement. Uh, the pension system, um, they lost 80, 80 performances at the Paris opera, of, of ballet and opera, and of course now it's wiped out. And so uh, either the government will do there and just throw in another few hundred million euros, um, and then if it's going to do that to everybody, I hope some of it comes to you and me, Terence. Absolutely. Uh, <clears throat> that, um, then of course we're going to have to look again afresh at what all this means for the economy. Michael, also, the
0: sad, the sad part of that is that, you know, there is so much theater, or had been so much theater in Paris. On any given day, there was probably more experimental, creative theater being produced in English here than in many major American cities, as an example. And once again, if these actors and dramaturgs uh, don't have an opportunity to work, don't have a, a stage in which to perform, uh, we're going to be that much more undernourished uh, culturally. Just as one, I think from the, the movie thing, we, we certainly have Netflix and a lot of streaming. It's not the same experience, but uh, the movie world will at some level continue, at least the stuff that we know, new productions being another story. Anyway, just before we, I, before we get to the end of the program, and once again, Alan, you've managed to eat up almost the entire program with your uh, quite uh, interesting and important com- comments. So I'll have to abbreviate my uh, my musical performance which uh, since all of the bars and hotels are closed, I can't sing anymore, but I can sing here. And we get back to the occupation. In 1942, Charles Trenet wrote a uh, a wonderful song called Qu'est Reste-Til, which in 1963 was a wonderful hit, a huge hit for uh, Gloria Lynn in the United States. Give you a little touch of both languages. (laughs) Qu'est Reste-Til de nos amours de ces beaux jours une photo, une photo de ma and in july a lemonade anyway a little touch of two languages a song that uh, is uh meaningful to me as it was when it was first recorded in 1942 Anyway, Alan, uh, great to have you with me. Uh, We've touched on any number of subjects that would certainly uh, merit another half hour of our time in the near future, and I hope you'll be available.
1: I'm always ready to hear from you, Terrence. It's always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Any
0: final final thoughts for people outside of being safe? Any suggestions on what they might be doing to
1: keep their cultural life alive? Well, apart from reading um, and, and buying – no, actually just buying all my books. Oh, no, now Amazon in France has got itself into into a tiff with the French government. and it's Exactly. Now, so maybe the answer is just – But
0: maybe Macron just, will consider bookstores yeah, essential. No, I,
1: first, of the, the opportunity of self-promotion was just irresistible. But now getting, <laughs> getting back to reality is I think listen to beautiful music. That's how one keeps saying –
0: Uh, Absolutely. Alan, thank you. And I just want to say to my guest, uh, once again, I want to thank you. I want to thank my listeners for joining us and ask them to please share their comments and suggestions uh, this broadcast and others at Terrence, T-E-R-R-A-N-C-E, at paris-expat.com. And visit paris-expat.com to sign up for my weekly newsletters about the City of Light. Until next time, à bientôt à Paris. Au revoir.